Welcome to the second season of Beyond Generations, an interview series. It's my journey of discovering what happened to Japanese American people during World War II and how people have been trying to acknowledge, understand, and learn from it and figure out how to connect it to the future. I am your host, Monica. Today's guest is Tamiko Nimura. She is a co author of a graphic novel. We hereby refuse Japanese American resistance to wartime incarceration. She's also an organizer of the annual Day of Remembrance in Tacoma and affiliate professor of urban studies at the University of Washington, Tacoma. In this episode, Tamiko will talk about how her Japanese American father made her proud of her heritage as a child and how she found her purpose and mission as a public historian. Let me take you along on my journey of discovery with Tamiko Nimura. My name is Tamiko Nimura. I'm a creative nonfiction writer and public historian. I was born in California, in Northern California, but I now live in Tacoma, Washington. So, your name, Tamiko, is actually a Japanese name, right? And I have not met many. You're Sansei. Yeah. Sansei, okay. Sansei, Yonsei generations of people who have a, a kind of Japanese name. So, mm. would you tell us a little bit about your Tamiko name, Tamiko? Sure. Um, so my dad was Nisei, um, uh, but he married later than a lot of other Nisei. Um, and so I was born in the early 1970s. Um, so, you know, a few decades after the incarceration, not, you know, right after the incarceration. Um, it was, as I understand it, a time uh, when people were really starting to um feel like their ethnic identities uh, were um, something to be proud of, something to be accepted. Um, and so when I was born, my father um, went to my Nisei uncle, uh, my uncle Sumito, who, um, who gave me my name, Tamiko. Um, I think he might've given my parents a few names to choose from but they liked the meaning of my name, um, Tamiko, and they wanted to uh, give me that. And the way that they told me and translated it was that it, it means most beautiful child, um, which as I grew up and started to learn kanji and the meanings of it, I think actually it means something like, you know, child of many beauties, um, which is another way to, to think about it. But they always told me it was, no, it's most beautiful child. <laughs> Um, but I liked that. And um, I also have a middle name. Um, it's uh, it's Scottish. I was named after my um, father's favorite character in a musical, um, Fiona. So it's Tamiko Fiona Nimura. And then my father, um, whose name was Taku Nimura, he, had, he gave himself a middle name, Frank. So he was Taku Frank Nimura. And so... I had his same initials and my sister also has the initials TFN. So all three of us have the TFN initials in this very Japanese American story. <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful story. 
So you told me about your father, Kaku. Your father was a Japanese American, right? Right. Okay. Your mother? So my mother、uh, was born in the Philippines and she came to the United States in the early 1950s.、Um, and then she met my father、uh, in the, I was probably around the late 1960s,、um, early 1970s. Your father passed away when you were very young, right? Yes,、yeah, that's right. He died when I was 10 years old. Oh, I'm so sorry. So, were there any element of Japanese culture in your family when you were growing up, or more like a Filipino、uh, influence, Filipino culture was in your family, which was like stronger and things like that? Yeah, definitely the Japanese、uh, cultural side was stronger,、uh, in part because my mother came to the United States when she was very young herself. Um, and she was probably around 10 or so, 10 or 11, when she came to the United States.、Um, and she、um, was adopted by her、uh, stepfather, who、um, was in the US Army. And so they moved around a lot and they didn't have as much of a connection to a one particular Filipino American community.、Um, whereas my dad right, grew up here and had, you know, A larger Japanese American family and to some extent a larger、um, community. But we had,、um, you know, we, we had different kinds of food in our house, right? We had lots of Japanese American foods and we had Filipino foods.、Um, my dad learned how to cook,、um, you know, kind of Americana kinds of food.、Um, so he also taught my mom to cook a little bit as well.、Um, my dad read us.、Um, You know, Japanese fairy tales, brought them home from the library. He played、uh, Japanese children's records for us、um, so that we would at least know the sounds, right, of,、uh, of what Japanese was.、Um, and then every year, my、um, extended family, so my father's family and his siblings, they would come together for an Oshogatsu、um, and have a really big potluck. <laughs> Um, it was quite elaborate. At one time, they, you know, probably close to, you know, 20, 25 people in a very small、um, house, usually. And you would have, you know, all kinds of, you know, sushi and sashimi and um, tempura um, for that many people, which is a lot. And,、um, you know, lots of, you know, gohan and、um, namasu and、um, all the, a lot of the traditional, you know, like the, the Thai, right, that you,、uh, that you serve.、Um, With its tail right curved up to s- signify vitality.、Um, a lot of those kinds of traditional foods,、um, we had that growing up as well.、Um, my larger city community you know, was predominantly white and,、uh, and Chicano, actually, or Latinx. And so、um, there, we didn't have as much、uh, connection to a community within my town, which was Roseville, California. Um, but we also got to go to、um, the Placer Buddhist Church in Penryn、um, and、uh, had you know, some, some of the、um, connections to the Japanese American community there. And then we would go downtown to Sacramento、um, to the Nihon Machi there and buy some of our foods,、um, for, especially for those meals right,、um, at those stores. Wow, that's great.、Uh, so, do, do you remember any of the Japanese? Um, fairy tales or Japanese music that、yeah. you listen to? Yeah.、Uh, yeah. yeah.、Uh, do do yeah, you I, remember like some of them, like titles or yeah, things like that? Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, he taught me how to sing Sakura very young. So I knew how to sing it. Sakura, Sakura. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, uh, that's actually the song I remember the most. And we did go to Japan twice before he died. Um, So um, I have very fond and vivid memories of those trips um, being connected to our Japanese family there. Um, We have family mostly in Hiroshima, which is where my uh, grandparents immigrated from. Um, but yeah, there's you know lots of songs. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, and yeah, the, the songs and the foods um, and the family gatherings were the things that I remember the most about you know feeling Japanese growing up. Mm-hmm. D- did you talk to your dad in Japanese or in English? No, no English, English. English. Yeah, yeah, he, right. Right, yeah. and my uh, and my mom also. You know, you know, so we really, really only spoke English in in our house. But there were ways that I think my parents tried to like you know give us a little bit of you know the, those those cultural things. And my dad actually used to come to my classrooms, like my school classrooms, and do different kinds of um, cultural demonstrations. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And then he would have different things from our house. Um, he would do like a little like, you know, chopsticks demonstration. And sometimes if the kids were old enough, they got to like practice learning how to pick up things right with the chopsticks. Um, we would have um, what else? Um, he probably had like a fan or something that he would show. Um, just different little like artifacts, I think, um, that were Japanese that he would talk about and demonstrate to them. Um and I'm really grateful that he was able to do those things um, because it helped give me a sense of cultural identity and pride in that environment, right? Which was largely not Japanese. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of got this, you know, had this feeling of, hey, you know, it's kind of cool to be Japanese. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of had these, you know, these things that I was connected to that my friends didn't necessarily know about. What Was it in your grade school when you were in grade Yeah, grade school. school. Oh, okay. Do you remember how other kids uh, uh, took your 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 father's demonstration? How did they they take it? Yeah, I as I remember, they were all pretty interested and excited about it. I have uh, I still am, am in touch with some of my childhood friends who remember when they would they remember him coming to um, our classes and doing demonstrations. Um, one of the funny things he would do is he would come with them. Um, in, in his yukata, right? And he would hide some coins, right? In one of the, the sleeves, right? And he would pull that and, you know, he would say, okay, what do you think is in here? And all the kids were like, many! And he would be, and he would say, yes, that's what it is. And, you know, people just thought that that was really cool and exciting. Um, I was in um, the Girl Scouts when I was little also. And one of the things that he did was he translated, um, you know, well, he, he didn't even translate. He basically made up a song, like an, an, an introduction song in Japanese, and we would sing it. Um, we went and sang it like at the mall or something. <laughs> um, at, but he, you know, he, Japanese lyrics, and it was to the tune of London Bridge. And so it was this like, you know, um, it was something like Moshi Moshi Anone Asoleska, like that. And, you know, so we would go along and sing it and you know there was just me my little <laughs> my little uh, Asian self in you know with my not Asian <laughs> friends and Girl Scouts um, but we would all be singing in Japanese and that was that was kind of cool yeah that's a great story and then your father you know helped you feel proud 
and very comfortable in your Japanese identity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he had to work hard for that, right? You know, he coming out of the camps, right? And I think he had they had a hard time back in Placer County, which was pretty conservative and pretty white. Um, and so they had, um, from what I understand, they had a hard time going to, you know, high school and, and school there. And so for a while, my dad, I think even dropped his first name Taku and he went by Frank, um, for quite some time. And then after a while he went by Taku Frank. And then by the time I was born and maybe even a little later, he was, um, more comfortable again with being just Taku. But I think even this, just those name changes, right. Say a lot in his own sense of identity. Um, and so, yeah, I have, you know, some cousins who have names that are, you know, more quote American, you know, like, um, you know, Raymond. Um, but then I also have other cousins who um, were, were given Japanese first names. So in our family, you know, that my sister and I are not the only cousins, um, not, not the only Sansei cousins who have Japanese first names. Yeah, I, I was going to uh, ask you about your father's camp experience because when you were a child, he was very positive about him being a Japanese American person, but he right. was actually in the camp, right? Yeah, so he was he was ten um, when um, the war broke out, basically, and so it was him, his siblings, and his parents. So um, most of my aunts and uncles, um, as well as my grandparents, uh, were all in camp. Did you hear any camp stories from any of your relatives who were in camps? You know, I don't remember stories so much at family gatherings. I remember them kind of talking about it in kind of a brief, you know, glancing kind of way um, as a child. And then um, in my junior year of high school, I interviewed my oldest auntie um, about uh, her camp experience. So I got to hear a lot more about that. And then um, as I got even older, I got to work with um, one of my uncles on his uh, on his memoirs. And so I learned more about his camp stories through uh, that experience. And um, when I was very young, I read um, my father's book, um, that he never got published, but his, his book about his camp experience as well. Um, he wrote it right around the time that I was being born, I think. Um, so there's a page that I have in the manuscripts where he dates it December, 1973. And that's the month and the year that I was born. So he was, you know, either, you know, writing that section then or finishing the book around then or something like that. But I think he wanted to have something. And when I was about eight or nine, I, I read that book, but I didn't quite understand it. Right. I was pretty young and it was, and that was one of the first times that I've heard about it. But um, I remember, you know, trying to talk to him a little bit about it and he, you know, he kind of gave it to me and said, okay, you know, go read this. And I think I was kind of like, and he says, well, what did you think? And I was kind of like, well, I, I, I liked it. But, you know, like, what do you, when you're that young, I think it's hard to say very much, right? And to really understand the full, the full story. Like, I didn't know, I think, when I was that young, just how many folks, right, were incarcerated. I didn't know about the larger community story or where it fit into the larger narrative of American history, right? I was really young, so I didn't know about that for a long time. Did you feel that your family members who were in a camp, were they 
like kind of willing to talk about it if you asked or or like you know don't 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 ask us kind of yeah no they were they've always been pretty willing to talk about it um Maybe the one exception is one of my uncles who um, was in the military intelligence service. Um, he never talked to me about his wartime experience before he passed away. And I think, I, I don't even know if he really talked about it with his own children. You know, they were really kind of sworn to secrecy. They could not really tell, right, what they, you know, what they did during the war for a long time. So um, I didn't really hear about that. But I heard, um, you know, whenever I, we've asked my um, my my relatives, my family members, to talk about camp. They've they've usually been pretty open about it, which I know is kind of rare. From what you told me about your your father, like uh, going to your school, doing demonstration on Japanese culture and things like that, it, I, I don't think it was like that in your family. But in some families, Japanese American families especially Nisei parents tried to make their children assimilate, like become right. very American. Yes. So what yes. do you think personally is a difference between those families who were, you know, proud and open mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know comfortable about being mm -hmm. Japanese American and talk about their past experiences mm -hmm. between that and, you know, not talk about it kind of family yeah. what do you think yeah is the difference yeah i do think that a, a big part of it i think is that my dad married later that i was born later that it was a different time right that you know ethnic pride was more uh acceptable right more acceptable even more fashionable right in some ways it was kind of cool to be japanese um you know and you know there were you know lots of like you know at sukiyaki restaurants right all over the place uh, that were kind of popping up and my dad made sukiyaki at home for you know his friends who would come over um that you know time i think was a big part of it it was it, when i was born it was more acceptable to be proud of who you were um i don't you know he i know had different struggles to to fit in as a nisei man um especially in the military but I think because, you know, again, if I wasn't born until the early 1970s versus, say, the 1950s, um, when conformity and assimilation would have been high priorities, right, for the Nisei coming out of camp, um, if I had been born then, right, I don't know if I would have had the same sense of ethnic identity and ethnic pride. And I don't, I don't think he would have either. But he was so young and married late, and I was born so late. So I'm a really young Sansei, right? And closer to a lot of young say. Yeah, I was thinking, yes, you're very young for a Sansei Japanese America. Yes. Yeah, yes. almost like a Yonsei generation. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, I'm closer to I'm closer to more Yonsei um in age. Mm, so the time was different. Yeah. Yeah, I think the time was different. So yeah, I think it's you know, I'm I'm not a typical Sansei, right? I'm closer to Yonsei. Mm, I see. Yeah. So uh, let me uh ask you a little bit about Tacoma. Uh, oh, sure. you're 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 now living in Tacoma, right? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, so tell us about the time you moved to Tacoma and uh, you found out about people in Tacoma having been incarcerated during World War II, right? After you moved to Tacoma. What I what I didn't know about is that we had such a large, uh, thriving Japanese American community before the war. 
Um, so I knew that there were Japanese Americans in Tacoma or had kind of a vague sense that there were. Um, I had a sense that, you know, there was still a, you know, a small community here. Um, but what I didn't know is the extent and vibrancy of that community pre-war. Um, so I moved to Tacoma in 2004 and I lived here for 10 years before I found out about um, Tacoma's Nihonmachi. It just really um, amazed me and just, you know, it, it, almost nothing uh, physical right, is left in the downtown core that would suggest that we had anything like that. So, you know, there are cities, you know, even Seattle, right, that have, you know, more visible traces of a Nihonmachi, right? Um, in Sacramento, even where I grew up, right, there was, you know, still enough of, you know, a presence so that there were a few, you know, supermarket, not even supermarkets, but like, you know, food stores, right, and um, like import stores, so I remember going to those in Sacramento. Um, and then, of course, there's San Francisco's Japantown um, that I grew up going to, especially in college. Um, you know, I, I remember that as being a very, you know, vibrant, you know, ongoing community. Um, but what I didn't know is that Tacoma had a Japantown with so many Japanese-owned businesses um, and institutions Um and it was a really well-developed one, too, that it wasn't just kind of a few stores here and there, right? There were, you know, and, and not just kind of necessities, right? It was also, you know, like restaurants and uh, sweet shops and uh, photography studios. Um, you know, these are things that suggest that, you know, people are, you know, kind of here for a longer term, right? And that they're here and you know, dedicated to really making, you know, building a life and a community here. Um, and that's the part that I didn't know um, about our downtown core. I mean, I'd been through the downtown core hundreds of times, right? By the time I learned we had this Nihomachi. And then when I learned that we had, you know, that I found this map, this hand-drawn map by a Japanese journalist named Kazuo Ito. Um, and I looked at the map and there were all these Japanese names on it, um, of, you know, attached to buildings, right? Or, you know, addresses. And it just took my breath away. Um, I don't think it's something that I, has ever quite left me. And what we know now is that that map has a lot of, we, there are lots of questions behind that map, right? And um, we don't know exactly where Ito got his uh, information. Um, I don't, I'm not saying that it's not accurate, but we don't know like the directories or the people that he talked to or, you know, like what was the Buddhist symbol really here? Or was the, you know, there, there are lots of things that, uh, lots of questions behind that map, but it's still a really powerful image of um, how vibrant our, you know, this community was before the war. There was a Japanese uh, uh, language school there? Even. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, there was a really uh, thriving Japanese language school in the Hongkulako. Um, and it was, um, a really interesting community institution. Um, a lot of Japanese language schools, I think, were attached to, um, you know, different religious uh, institutions, right? So temples or churches. Um, but this one in Tacoma was unique because um, both Buddhist and Christian students went there. Um, it was kind of a gathering place, you know, across the denominations. And so that was one place where the community really came together, right, to... Um, both to build it, but also to maintain it, um, to have the supplies and all of those things. After you moved to Tacoma in 2004, you started the, the Day of Remembrance in Tacoma, right? 
Yes, but years after, right? So a good probably 10. Oh, years after that. Okay, tell us about the Day of Remembrance in Tacoma. Sure. Um, so let's see. I think we started in 2016. I started my research on Tacoma's Japanese American history in 2014, 2015, I think. Um, again, I'm so bad at dates, but <laughs> um, this is why I tell people I'm not a great historian because dates are not my thing, <laughs> are not what I remember. But um, so I started researching Tacoma's Japanese American history for um, the state online encyclopedia called History Link, um, where I was asked to write the history of the neighborhood. And so um, in writing the history of the neighborhood and then um, in learning about the Tacoma Japanese language school at around the same time, um, I just kind of became obsessed. <laughs> um, and so in, I believe it was 2016, um, my um, my colleague and friend, Michael Sullivan, who's a Tacoma historian, was invited to um, do a walking tour of Tacoma's Nihonmachi. Um, and he had been doing his own research and work on historic preservation and the Japanese Americans in Tacoma. So he knew enough to be able to do that tour, but I did not really. We've done a little bit of research together on one building. Um, but he said, you know, would you like to you know, join me on you know, giving this walking tour? And I said, I would love to. I don't know very much about doing this, but, you know, you can teach me. <laughs> and so um, to commemorate, um, goodness, it would, would have been the 75th, I think, anniversary of Executive Order 9066. Um, we were um, basically set to do this walking tour of Nihonmachi. Um, the uh, group that's now called Tacoma Arts Live had asked Michael to do this tour. They had also commissioned a play called Nihonjin Face about the Japanese in Tacoma. And so um, they said, you know, to Michael, Go, can you give this tour? And so we, you know, showed up on this very cold uh, February day. And we thought, you know, if 25 people show up, that'll be a great tour. Um, but 90 people showed up to that very first tour. And we were so shocked and delighted and amazed. And that told us that a lot of people really wanted to know more about the stories um, of Japanese Americans and in Tacoma. So um, after that, we started giving a few more tours. We worked with um, an organization called Downtown on the Go and uh, gave the tour uh, twice in you know two years. And each time, close to 250 people showed up um, to, <laughs> to these tours. Again, just really interested in knowing about this um, kind of varied layer of the downtown history. Day of Remembrance, though, um, came about in part, in part because, uh, you know, Michael knew that, you know, every year the Japanese American community holds in February a Day of Remembrance to commemorate the signing of Executive Order 9066. Um, and after that first walking tour, Michael said, you know, maybe we should do a Day of Remembrance in Tacoma. Um, we should really, you know, stand at Union Station where those Tacomans, you know, departed um, for, on the trains and, you know, feel the impact of that moment. And I said, you know, that that's a great idea. We should. But, you know, February had already passed. And we said, well, maybe we should do it, you know, right around the time that they were evicted in May, which gave us a very short amount of time. But the Washington State History Museum actually um partnered with us and they, you know, gave us a space and resources to host it. And so we began our first day of remembrance um, then in 20, May 2016 um, on the days that the uh, Tacoma Japanese Americans left. So um, I think it was May 17th 
was the first one that we did. And so we've done something every year since then. Um, you know, during COVID, we did some online programs and talks. Um, different uh, arts organizations have stepped up to um, either perform a play uh, for us or um, do a screening of a Nihonjin face. Um, and so I've um, taken um, some 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 responsibility to try and uh, have the city remember that occasion every year, but also to mix it up a little bit every year so that people who come aren't expecting exactly the same thing and that people don't get, um, you know, you know, tired of the same story, but we always try to really connect it back to, you know, Tacoma history to, to, to tell the larger story um, of camp. And also, um, you know, the history museum also has, you know, had different kinds of exhibits, including one permanent one um, about the, uh, the history of camp and the, incarcer the incarceration in Washington state. So if I remember it correctly, uh, this year's the Day of Remembrance in Tacoma, the theme was like focusing on younger generation, was it? Yeah. So yeah, would you tell us a little bit more about why you, you chose that theme this year? Yeah, I wanted to focus on youth and I wanted to focus on remembrance, partly because I noticed that the people who had been coming um, tended to be, um, you know, older folks, which is great. We love them coming. But I also want people who are younger to, you know, my, my kids age, right, they're teenagers, um, to know more about this history and to uh, to remember it. We're also across the street um, from the History Museum is UW Tacoma. And I wanted to really try to draw um, people from that, um, that community um, into Day of Remembrance. Um, and, you know, youth are such an important part of carrying on that memory and sustaining it. Um, if I only, you know, uh, do Day of Remembrance for older folks, then, you know, that means that at a certain point, right, that younger folks are not going to feel included or interested. So I really want to try and I wanted to try to target um, younger folks um, in bringing this history to life. Mm, great idea. So uh, what kind of reaction, what kind of feedback and comments did you get uh, from younger people? Uh, this year after the, the, the day of remembrance in Tacoma? I didn't get, I didn't get to talk to as many of them as I would have liked, but um, there were professors who brought their students from Utah Tacoma um, to different programs. Um, when I, um, we, we did a kind of soft launch of the Tacoma Japantown website that I've been working on with a team of um, in part students and um fairly recent graduates from UW Tacoma and UPS. Um, so, um, you know, the, the people who, the, you know, the students and kind of former students, recent students, um, said that they really enjoyed participating um, in the project, that they found it really interesting and they thought it was really meaningful as well. Um, and... I'm trying to think of who else. Um, and, you know, we had some things, some activities, right, for some of the younger, younger, younger kids, right? Um, we partnered a little bit with the Tacoma Children's Museum and did a little story time and had some coloring pages and some origami at the Day of Remembrance. Um, again, just to get people, you know, get people there to see the exhibits and the programs that we had that day. We see. And then going back to your Tacoma walking tour, it was a like a big success. 
to be a success. And then you made a, a, right. a smartphone app for right. a self-guided walking tour of Takuma's uh-huh. historic Japan town. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the smartphone app for the self-guided walking tour of, of Takoma. Yeah, after that very first uh, walking tour, um, we realized very quickly that we could not, uh, you know, we, we only had, you know, the two of us, um, no microphones. And, you know, we had like, our two little uh, tablet, you know, iPads, right, with some photos to show people. Um, but, you know, we could not project as well as we wanted to. Um, and we couldn't show people, you know, all the people, the photos and everything. So um, my husband is a composer and a software developer. And he said, let me make you an app. <laughs> and so Michael and I said, great. So I, you know, you know, I kind of curated some of the content and Michael had some input about, you know, some of the stops and what we put on, you know, each thing, uh, each stop with the, uh, with the app. And um, so my husband created this app that has um, about, I think, eight or 10 stops where Michael and I would have taken people, but um, there are contemporary and historic photos um, on the app of uh, some of the places where we show people. And then if there is written content, like the uh, History Link article that I wrote about the neighborhood or the, um, the Buddhist temple that I co-wrote with Justin Wadland, anything like that. Um, that's there are links in that application to the written content um, that gives you more context about each stop. Um, it's a little bit it's a little bit dated though. We need to update it a bit more. But I've been working on the website, and so that will be the next thing. But if you look up Tacoma Japan Town Walking Tour, um, then you can find our uh, our application. Um, it's free and it's for iPhone and for Android. And then um, in the late fall, probably late October, early November, we will do um, a website launch um, also called Tacoma Japan Town, which will have um, even more content, (laughs) Um, maps, historic photos, story maps, um, content uh, about and from um, the book Becoming Nisei by uh, Professors Lisa Hoffman and Mary Hanneman. Um, links to interviews with uh, the Tacoma Language School students um, that the UWT library um, digitized from the um, from the interviews that the students did with the uh, professors at UWT. So um, lots and lots more. Um, the stories just keep coming, and the photos and the, and the descendants uh, keep you know going through their grandparents and parents' uh, belongings and boxes, and more things keep coming out. Wow, it's exciting. Wow. So did you say this website will be launched sometime this fall? Yeah, we did a, we did a, a soft launch at the Day of Remembrance this year. Oh, oh, so it's already accessible. Yeah, it is, but it's not done. But it's coming up. Yeah, yeah. it's coming up, yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So now you have become very active in raising awareness about the wartime incarceration and you have made an app you did a walking tour the day of remembrance and you showed up in media and also you co-authored a book Mm -hmm. uh, we hereby refuse a lot of things it seems like your creative focus has become more on the wartime incarceration over time to me, it looks like your focus got stronger and stronger over mm, time. Yeah. So how do you describe your journey? Like why, how it happened? Would you describe the journey? Yeah. Um, so let me think. Um, 
you know, the, the story of incarceration is always something that's been pretty important to me because it's been so important to so many members of my family. Um, so it's something that I learned about, knew about as a, you know, as a child in college, I wrote, um, my honors thesis about, uh, Japanese American sansei writers, uh, women writers who wrote about camp. Um, so that was always there. Um, and then going into graduate school, um, I wouldn't say that I took a detour, but it was a, a kind of a broader focus for a while. So I focused on Asian American and African American literatures, um, especially. Um, and um, when I taught for a little while as a as an English professor, um, I would teach American ethnic literatures quite often. So again, that sort of broader focus was there. And then when I left academia, one of the ways that I think helped me find um, a, you know, a purpose, um, a way to serve a community. My community was through um, these forms of public history um, from writing um, kind of the more emotionally in-depth uh, pieces, creative uh, essays about what it was to be um, someone who inherited the legacy of the incarceration. Um, and I have really become interested in how we process that legacy, right? That it's really something that in some ways the community is still coming to terms with, that the community is still reckoning with and healing from. Um, and so that has become really my, I think sort of, uh, maybe not my end goal, but really a, a, a powerful focus for me now. Um, bringing those stories to light um, and, um, showing how the legacy of uh, the incarceration still echoes quite powerfully into our present day. Uh, and not just for those whose relatives were in camp, right? I think it's, it really is for, you know, for our society, um, which is why I think, you know, the story of Tacoma has been so powerful um, for me, though my family is not from Tacoma. Um, I think just the this, this sort of lack of um, larger awareness around um, Tacoma's, you know, Japanese American history has mirrored in some ways the lack of awareness around Japanese American history in American society, right? Or, you know, there are lots of people who are, you know, from the Midwest or from the East Coast who either have never heard of the incarceration, or if they have, it was a very, you know, kind of small um, mention, right, in a textbook or something like that. And then when people find that, come to find that they really yeah, there's so much more to know <laughs> um, about it, that it wasn't just a kind of blip in American history, then they too become really um, obsessed with how powerful um, this history still lingers today. I see. So your focus, you know, started from more like a personal mm -hmm. now to like a, for a wider community. Yeah, yeah, I would, yes, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. And now, now you are working on your father's memoir, right? So I'm working on my own memoir that incorporates my father's memoir. That book, yes, incorporating that book your father gave to you long time ago. That's right. Oh, your your own memoir incorporating that's your right. father's <laughs> memoir, like a family project. Yes. yes. Oh, okay. So is it, is it going to be like a, a, a book? Are you going to yeah. publish a book or it's still like, uh, no, no, no. It's, I mean, it's, it, I've been working on it for a really long time. <laughs> um, 
Um, but um, right now, as of 2023, um, it is called A Place for What We Lose, um, an Asian American memoir of reckoning and resilience. So that is the working title right now. Um, it's the story of how um, losing my job as a professor forced me to reckon with a lot of grief around my father's death when I was very young, um, around um, becoming, you know, something else and turning to a different career as a writer and a public historian, and uh, how it led me ultimately to um, go on a community pilgrimage to the site where um, my family members were incarcerated. Um, and then, you know, to rereading um, his book and to really reckon with um, what it was to lose him so young. And like a person's life journey is really magical, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You never know what takes you to the real purpose of your life. You never know. It's very true. I would never have guessed that that public history would be something that I <laughs> that I would say truly. I, <laughs> you know, like literature is my first love, right? So literature and stories, um, and because of my training in, in American ethnic studies, which I got partly from my undergraduate education and partly from my graduate school education. Um, that's that interest in bringing, uh, you know, hidden stories to light, you know, raising awareness and having that kind of, um, that kind of activist bent, right, to um, all of that knowledge um, really is um, something that, that, that influenced me and pulled me into public history. But I never would have said, you know, I would be a public historian if you'd asked me 10 years ago. <laughs> I would just, yeah, you know, I would say, oh, no, I'm, you know, that's not my training. That's not my, you know, I'm not a historian in all these ways. But um, I've come to claim that a bit more recently as something that I do do, which is history that is um, made accessible and um, public facing, right? Um, for, broader, for broader audience. What do you think we should learn from the history of uh, the Japanese American incarceration that happened during World War II? What what should we learn from? That? Oh goodness, <laughs> um, there's yeah, I know there's so many things. <laughs> so I, I will say that I have I have you know many answers, right? Um, you know, one of them is of course that we have to be so careful about what um, what we are doing now that you know follows those same kinds of paths. Um, around family separation and um, deportation and um, xenophobia and fear of the other and telling accurate histories. Um, but I think one of my main purposes most recently has been to show that these kinds of, um, these kinds of incidents in history have very, very long reper repercussions, echoes um, that they last not just for the generation that it's happening to, right, but for the generations that come after those generations, right? So, you know, a lot of people, I think, tend to think that uh, the, the Japanese American incarceration was this kind of blip. And then look how, you know, how well Japanese Americans came back from that right, you know, the, the model minority myth and all of that stuff. Um, but what I hope to show in more of my recent work is that um, these, these kinds of historical traumas last 
a very long time throughout generations, not just one generation. And so if you are doing something terrible, like separating um, immigrants from their children, migrants from children at their border, at the borders, that will affect not just the migrants, not just their children, but it will affect the children of those children and for decades to come. And so I really want us to think about the long term um, that, you know, you are harming generations of children to come. And that's what I want people to think about. What we do and what we let happen today will affect future generations, years and decades to come. This awareness helps us make right decisions and take right actions, not only for ourselves, but for the next generation. Like Tamiko does, passing down and sharing the history of Japanese Americans with a wider audience is one thing. What role do you think you can and you want to play? Special thanks to Tamiko Nimura. Music by Zakar Balaha. I hope you enjoyed the very first episode of the season 2 of Beyond Generations, the interview series. Join our community on Instagram at beyondgenerations.seattle for updates and extras. Thank you for listening and see you next time. This is Monica. You have been listening to Beyond Generations. My journey of discovery will continue.